Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to OKF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, having pre-recorded from the home bunker. Folks, I'm really excited to be bringing you conversations that I've had with Imagine 2200, which is a fixed climate fiction contest with some of the finalists of that contest. And let me tell you a little bit about Imagine 2200. It recognizes stories that envision the next 180 years of equitable climate progress, imagining intersectional worlds of abundance, adaptation, reform, and hope. And I'm bringing you these conversations as a way to inspire, enlighten, and provide a bit of hope. I think too often, as you all know from listening to me on a regular basis, that we have a tendency to dwell, right, in the dystopia, the cruelty, the anger, the violence that is being visited upon this country and our communities on a regular basis. It is daunting and exhausting to think about how far this country has fallen and how we are at a place where the climate crisis is no longer impending. We're living it. We're living it every hurricane season, every tornado season, every fire season. You know, in the beginning of November, which, you know, November, as folks know, is my birthday month, uh, my birthday month. Uh, Shout out to Scorpios. It has been consistently in the 70s for the last several years. That's not normal. I don't remember a time while I was growing up on Long Island that November was a time for sleeveless tops and, you know, an extension of rosé season. And yet it has become increasingly the norm over the last several years as this earth, as our planet continues to warm and we have those that are in power 
in this country and around the globe that because of greed refuse to do anything of note to fix it because their issue is just like, oh, why fix it when we couldn't make money now? Who cares? We won't be around forever. And at least we can, you know, sit on top of our billions and think that that's going to protect us as the tsunamis and monsoons and, you know, hurricanes and fires take over. So what I love about Imagine 2200 and the authors that we have been and are profiling is their stories are not absent of the reality of where this world is or how we have gotten into this world that they have created. But it is about the hopefulness that comes from a place of destruction, frankly. And so this next author, TK Rex, whose story I just enjoyed so much. I've enjoyed all of their stories and we are linking to them in the show notes section so that everyone can click on the link and either read or just sit back and listen to some of these stories because they really do just take you away. And I think that it's really important for us to find good, you know, hopeful, abundant ways of removing ourselves from the present and allowing ourselves to be in a dreamscape to be in a restful space where we can imagine other worlds, where we can imagine alternatives to the obstacles that we're facing. So TK Rex, their story is entitled A Holdout in the Northern California Designated Wildcraft Zone. An inquisitive and thoughtful drone responsible for protecting a forest ecosystem stumbles upon a surprise deep in the woods. And in my conversation with TK, we talk about their story and we talk about the hopefulness that is a part of it that makes us believe that, yeah, clearly we are still living at a time of deforestation. Clearly we are living at a time where we're readily polluting the waters and emitting so much carbon into the air that we're alternating how earth spins. Remember, I shared that story and that was a true one. But in her story, it is also not just about the damage that humankind has done to the planet, but how humans have the ability to also be the antidote, right? To what is ailing us. So I hope that you will enjoy this interview as much as I did with author TK Rex and going over her wonderful story, A Holdout in Northern California Designated Wildcraft Zone. And if you are interested in reading the full 2022 collection, head to grist.org slash climate and learn more or click the link in the show notes. Coming up next, my conversation with TK Rex. Folks, I am very excited to welcome to Woke AF Daily for the first time short story writer, author TK Rex, who is the author of A Holdout in Northern California, Designated Wildcraft Zone. They are part of Imagine 2200 Fixed Climate Fictions Contest, which recognizes stories that envision the next 180 years of equitable climate progress. Imagining Intersectional Worlds of Abundance, Adaptation, Reform, and Hope. 
Um, TK, thank you so much for making the time to join uh, Woke AF. I loved your story um, for so many reasons, but I want to give you, before we dig in, give you the opportunity to tell folks about the themes, uh, the theme of, of your story. Yeah. So the central premise is there's a whole swath of Northern California that's been designated a wildcraft zone for like both carbon sequestration and like potentially food and materials production from wildcrafting. And it's managed by an AI, by a network intelligence that has like individual drones that have their own individual, they're individually intelligent. So the main character, point of view character in the story is one of these drones and it encounters a woman in the woods who shouldn't be there because everybody should have left and gone to the cities by then. And uh, the theme of like who belongs in nature, I think is Mm. a big question in this story and related stories that I've been working on. And what does it mean to like be a part of the landscape and to be responsible for the landscape? I loved it so much because one, um, I want to get into uh, the, the lead character July um, and her story, but you know, what I loved about it and what I love about this entire series um, is the fact that all of science fiction, not all of it, but a large swath of science fiction, a large swath of futurism is de- is steeped in dystopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that our future does not have to be so bleak. Our future doesn't have to be about robots taking over and enslaving humankind or that there is scorched earth and sky uh, and we're forced underground. Um, and so what I loved about this was when the drone is introduced as this rewilding drone. And so I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the, the imagery and the idea around rewilding and kind of what, what had happened, uh, in your story in Northern California to kind of force this rewilding. Yeah. Oh man. That's a whole... (laughs) That's a whole other book. <laughs> <laughs> so I I started with years ago. Um there there had been like a whole novel that I wrote that's in this world that takes place later in the timeline that ended up being another story that's coming out in January. And Ooh, this is like a little bit earlier in that timeline, uh, because this period of time where like the rewilding is an active thing and and people are still like living out was so interesting. But the the events that led up to that have changed since I first came up with the idea. The original idea was like, oh, what if like we rewilded everything and everybody just lived in the cities? And wouldn't that be like the most ecological, like friendly thing to do? And this was years ago. And the more I dug into that, the more I realized that actually was like deeply problematic. <laughs> and uh, there actually been like a whole history of that, you know, which I knew a lot of that. Like I, I grew up like, um, next door to the Navajo Nation, and um, like had I, I knew how people had been relocated in the past, but like I hadn't connected that to like mm. what might have happened in ecology. Or, or and I worked for the National Park Service for a summer, you know, too, and I didn't I didn't know the whole history of how they had moved people out to make parks, and that was kind of what I was recreating in my so called utopia. 
And I was like, wait a minute, like I have to rethink that a little bit if I'm going to write this. And um, my mom also totally called me on it. So (laughs) 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 I love that. Yeah. So at first I had to like try and come up with some kind of crazy science fiction scenario where like that would have had to happen. And I had some idea, oh, well, maybe like global politics changed so radically that like the the like other like nations that had finally become like fully industrialized decided to punish like the Western nations for all Mm. of the pollution that they'd done. And I was like, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. And then I started to see these little pieces like come in real life of like all of the fires we have in the West. Yep. And how people were, entire cities were burning down, you know, and like people had to move in the cities because like their rural areas were no longer safe. And that's not, that's, that's still not something that's like extremely common, but it, it keeps happening. And I find that like every time I go stay in like an Airbnb to get out of the city, it's in an area that's had a disaster recently. And I'm like, is this just the trend mm. now? Like, is this what's happening? Mm-hmm. And it's weird seeing it. And you can see, I so I have this, I have this timeline. This, is in, this isn't exactly in the story mm-hmm. <laughs> at all, but like the timeline that leads up to that is actually one that I'm seeing playing out now. And it's, it's starting to look more and more realistic where um, rural areas are no longer tenable places to live in the West because right. nobody's going to want to insure them. The infrastructure is going to start to fall apart as the population gets smaller and smaller. And then after a while, there might even be like incentives to move people in closer to the cities so that we can maintain infrastructure in a sustainable way. And like that will be maybe good for some people. It will probably suck for a lot of people. And you know, be I, people who will never move. You you say that, and I you know, it conjures all of the things that images of things that we I discuss on this show which is, you know, Mississippi's infrastructure in Jackson, uh, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and not having any clean water with the breakdown of, you know, factories being sent abroad. And so you, I remember going to Detroit, Michigan for the first time. And it was, it, and now in my mind, I guess I would call what was happening to the buildings and the areas that had been deserted because of people leaving in order to go and find work because the the entire uh city infrastructure had just crumbled right the, the, if there are no people that are, that are there then they're yeah. going to be forced out and there was like i mean entire ivy plants that had taken over what was formerly a library you know and trees in in now growing up inside of a fire mm-hmm. station like it was wow. it was so it was so wild you know, like wild to see, but then also <laughs> what had been there prior to development, right? Prior to wow. the creation of these of these towns and cities, you had to flatten, right, uh, wildlife uh, and and land in order to in, in order to allow for communities uh, to grow. Um, and so when I, you know, when I was when I was listening to your your piece, it was conjuring those memories of of going to Detroit and kind of leaving feeling very um very very much grief stricken right like it was one what what we have done to communities that then have no choice but to leave a home that they've known and then what we've done to nature 
uh, and nature re wanting to reclaim its its space. Um, in in your story, I, I also thought that it was amazing that um, the rangers, uh, as the drone mm. is is kind of in in communication with the network to get a sense of how much time uh, they have in order to convince uh, the the lone woman that they have stumbled upon to leave. Uh, to head into her, what you wrote was like humans' natural ecosystem. So I wanted you to to speak a little bit about like what this idea of humans' natural ecosystem is. Yeah. So in the story, the the drone network has this idea that humans belong in the city where they're like that's their designated zone, and so they think of it as like one of the many ecosystems that they tend. And that's the one where like the humans should be going so that they can be together and have all their schools and hospitals and electricity and stuff like that that they need. Um, and the rangers are sort of this separate entity. And I don't want to give away like the whole story. But no, no, I- no, 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 <laughs> no, no. But- <laughs> okay, okay. The rangers are sort of this sentence, this, this separate entity and... Um, you believe it's very much like their purview to say who can and can't be outside of the city walls. Um, and the relationship between those two entities, I think is interesting and I won't give anything away because it, it's explored a little bit in the story and a little bit more in some of the other stories that they're writing in that world. Um, remind me what the question was. <laughs> no, I just, just like this idea that essentially humans don't really belong in right. in in this idea of nature, right? Like right. that that humans essentially, because of the way that we have mowed over nature yeah. in order to create schools and hospitals and build homes and all of these things, that it that it's almost as if the by the drones and the network's perspective, they're like, oh, you don't belong in this space because essentially you ruin it. Yeah, yeah. I I was absolutely coming from at the, at the time when I first came up with like the uh, some of the earliest world building for this um it was around 2015 I was taking uh an ecology class actually uh over in Philadelphia and I was spending a lot of time on the train <laughs> and so I, I wrote the very first version of something in this world on a train um thinking about that ecology class and everything like I'd learned and my parents are both environmentalists you know and I had I had grown up very much like very close to nature and like in rural areas and like taught that you know the earth like the guy I knew what the Gaia hypothesis was when I was like seven you know what I mean like I I had I had this whole personal relationship with nature but all around me I was seeing like how destructive humans had been to nature and the early premise where, oh, no, we should be separating everybody from this so we can let, like, the land heal or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I had this idea early on that that was probably a good thing, that humans should just, like, step mm. all the way outside of this and just do our own thing for a little while and let nature recover. And then when I start, the moment I started actually digging into that idea, I found that, no, there's... The moment I the moment I had to have a real setting and not an imaginary setting, and I was like, it's going to be Northern California because I have spent the most time there and I know the land the best, and 
um, I want to learn more about the place I live in too, you know? And so writing a book is always a great way to learn new things. (laughs) Um, The moment I had to make it a specific place and get into like, okay, if we're going to do wild crafting at a city population level scale to feed everybody and have like native foods that don't need irrigation, what foods are they going to be? So it's not easy to find out, actually. Like I I had to really get detailed about it. Like I Mm. had to get books. (laughs) I had to read books, you know. And uh, my God, this is a book called Tending the Wild. Um, That's all about like the different plants that native Californians had used for at the, at the time it was written, it was thought like maybe 10 to 12,000 years. And now I'm hearing like 14,000 years or maybe longer that people have been living in California or the place mm. California now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the incredible detail to which we have just the stuff that we have documented, which so much was lost, you know, so much was lost, but like just the things that we actually have documented historically from that time and like the traditions that remain and the knowledge that remains in the indigenous communities is like it was mind blowing for me just how much California had been a managed landscape before colonialism, how like every all these places that I think I know so well, like in California, we have these like famous kind of golden hills in the fall, all that grass, it's mm-hmm, all European mm-hmm. grass. The Spanish came in and just reseeded everything so they could have cattle. And wow. Yeah. And the way. I mean, I think more and more people know this now, but like the fires that we have are so bad in part because around the turn of the last century, around like 1900-ish, there had been a law instated to not allow any fires in the state. And that that includes the um, cultural burning practices of indigenous people who were here. And it turns out, like, they that you actually doing. needed them. Yeah. <laughs> they had been maintaining, like, all of these regular burning patterns all over the state, not just to prevent big, dangerous fires, but right. also because, like, so many of the plants here benefited from that. And so many of the plants here were able to, like, be more productive because of that for, like, all kinds of complicated reasons. Like, new shoots growing in a specific way after a fire so that you could use them for arrows or building or construction or baskets. And then like oak trees, because acorns were such a staple food here and we have so many different kinds of oak trees, but so many of them, that underbrush, when you burn that underbrush under the oak tree, the oak tree is going to be fine, especially if it's an old oak tree and they live for so long. Um, But that clears out the pests that then get into the acorns when like the harvest happens. So the acorn, there's like an acorn worm that gets into the acorns. But if you burn all the leaf litter under the tree, you don't get as many acorn worms. And so there's more acorns to eat. And Mm. there's so many intricate little ways that it was managed. And it was so, it was so much richer even than I imagined a science fictional version of it could be in the future. When I actually look at and read about the accounts of like, how geese had darkened the skies and their migration in California and how like full of salmon the rivers had been. It was, it was so far beyond like what I even imagined we could build back up to in the future with like AI that I was like, Oh crap, my AI, they're going to realize that too. You know what I mean? They're going to realize that too. And they're going to be like, hold on. 
were people that died for nature, but that's a, that's a that's a side plot that evolves in like an interesting way over several different stories. That's incredible, honestly, because I think that so much so much obviously has been lost um, in indigenous culture that colonization has wiped out, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 disallowed the history and the richness of those traditions to really continue to permeate how we exist. Um, it's like you, the idea about uh, evolving into an industrialized nation, you know, wiped out any basis for the foundations, like those indigenous cultures and practices were the foundations of how industry was built. And so the yeah. idea that we don't actually intertwine and lift up what what allowed industry to take place is kind of spelling our disaster and our demise that we are witnessing in every single historic fire season that we've had and every single, you know, uh, historic hurricane that we are seeing. You know, one of the questions that I have for you too is that quarantine in COVID Mm -hmm. provided a really interesting time around the world. And I remember, you know, in 2020, as humans were forced inside because of the rampant COVID-19 virus, that in Venice, dolphins had come back to the canal, Mm -hmm. that there was like a regrowth in a lot of areas, particularly in the waters, were becoming cleaner with just a few months of Mm -hmm. removal of human activity. So it's almost like for me, as I was listening to your story, COVID provided a bit of a window into the impact that our footprint has had Mm -hmm. on the environment and that the removal, even just for a small while, like the earth will replenish itself Mm -hmm. and and fairly rapidly. So what are your, what are your hopes, TK, that, that, that folks take not only from your story, but this in, this reimagining of our future in a pot, in an optimistic and hopeful light. Yeah, I think. Firstly, I I thought the dolphins were photoshopped. Like there were so many. Were they? Actually, I, I thought the dolphins, though. Like I was like, that's really weird. And I mean, there were. I thought it was weird, know. but I, there are dolphins in the Hudson in New York yeah. that oh like God, that really. that come, <laughs> that I swear to God that that come in. So I to me, I was just like, is it Photoshop? Okay, folks, I, I have to look that up. Um, I, I know there had been some photoshopped things in that whole trend, but yeah, no, it is. It, it's real too, and. um I, I hear you. I I definitely um I definitely you know have seen we've we've all seen how quickly nature can take back like the space it's intended. There is I live in downtown San Francisco, you know, surrounded by tall buildings and there's a lot right across the street from me that like I can't see it from street level because there's a big like black painted fence that people are always like having to repaint every single day and like, why not just let it be a mural or something? Like, just let people put art on it if it's just going to be a black fence for years. Anyway, that's besides the point. Um, from, like, up a little bit higher, you can see in, and it's just filled with plants. And how do they get there? Like, the wind, you know, the birds, I don't know. But it's already, mm. this. you leave something untended, and it's going to rewild itself, that's for sure. But, like, with what and, like, 
how how is that how is whatever's just the default going to play with the rest of the ecosystem, especially with so many invasive species around everywhere? And is it going to be something that's is the fastest thing that comes back isn't necessarily the thing that's going to be the most broadly like beneficial to the existing ecosystem. And there's also, you know, one of the things that I kind of explore in this is in this world is how can we have a rewilded landscape that then is also usable for us in a way that helps keep that relationship sustainable, you know, something that like harks back to we we historically as human beings have had so so many ways to use everything in our environments and like fulfill all of our needs like and like for crafting household items like baskets or you know whatever and and food and medicine and my grandma um was an herbalist so i was brought up like going on walks with her up in the forest in the Olympic Peninsula and she would always point out like every single plant and like its scientific name and like what the pioneers used it for and what the native peoples used it for and so I grew up with wow. that knowledge of like oh all of these things are inherently useful for us and mm-hmm. need to be like both like respected and taken care of and protected you know and you don't take all of them you always leave some for the next person that kind of stuff is like what I was raised with you know so I I wanted to put that in a story. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, I, I I hope that not only your story, but the the entire series, um, Imagine 2200, that it prompts some hopefulness um yeah. and some light and possibility in people that isn't this darkened dystopian machine, you know, future. Um, that nature can still very much be a part and needs to be. Otherwise, we don't thrive as as human beings. And, you know, as as the drone said to July in your story, you know, as animals, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that we were, that we remember, we remember that piece. Um, TK, yeah. thank you so very much for making the time to join Woke AF. I enjoyed your story so very much. Folks, it will be in the link uh, in the description, the story is entitled A Holdout in the Northern California Designated Wildcraft Zone, and it is part of Imagine 2200, Fix Climate Fiction Contest. Thank Appreciate you. you. That is it for me today, dear friends on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. 
Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.